This is episode 490 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. One of the most sobering truths you can discover about your salvation is that it's not all about you. That's right. Your salvation is actually about the kingdom of God. We just happen to be the beneficiary of a great blessing from God in our salvation, but the overriding purpose of our salvation is not just about us, but about the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, when we think about salvation today, it seems to begin with our justification and end with our spending eternity in heaven, and it always seems to be centered around us. Today, we're going to be looking at the fact that our salvation is not about us, but we're a small, integral part of the overriding purpose of God in establishing His kingdom and glorifying His Son. So join with us today as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. of the Bible, of Ezekiel, of Daniel, of Revelation, because I'm just going to do a, a, an overview and a survey as we're trying to build a foundation for some amazing truth regarding the millennial reign of Christ, regarding the kingdom, regarding rewards, our loss of rewards, regarding a great motivation for you and I to be about the Lord's business, that we'll be putting it all together hopefully next week. So this is, again, kind of a, a foundation that shows us that salvation, believe it or not, is not about us, but is about the kingdom of God. This is the verse that I have up here when you first walk in. I did it last week too. And it talks about what Jesus talked about during the 40 days between his, his resurrection and his ascension. From Acts chapter 3, or Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he presented himself alive, many convincing proofs. Don Emmaus, he met the disciples at the end of John, ate breakfast with them, showed Thomas his scars, so many other indications of uh, Jesus revealing himself. I want you to know I truly am the Messiah. I want you to know that I truly am alive, and I want you to get my message. Last week, we did nothing but do a survey of just Matthew regarding the kingdom of God, and I hope you were overwhelmed by the fact that that's almost exclusively what Jesus preached about, something that we don't, because we've taken this kingdom of God, which is out there and doesn't belong to us, and we've taken that away, and instead, most of our preaching and our worship songs and our Christianity today is all about us, like we're the center of everything, and we're really not. John the Baptist began preaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is here. Sermon on the Mount talked about what life is like in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. We go all the way through just Matthew and the other gospels are the same. We look at the book of Acts and we see what the early church preached. We see right here, in my opinion, as Jesus, the teacher, the most important time for him to get his key message to his disciples before he's gone. It's like, guys, I'm leaving in a little over a month, so you got to get this. I spent three and a half years with you, and you're still not understanding. you got to get this. Well, what is the message, Jesus, pertaining to the kingdom of God? It's always about the kingdom. But when we think of our relationship with Christ, it's always about us. 
it's always about salvation and the benefits of salvation. And you've got the prosperity gospel today, which makes God's gift of his son to you all about accumulating trinkets and toys and making your life better on this world. And like I've shared with you before, if this is your best life now, you're on your way to hell because your best life is not here. Your best life is with him in his kingdom. The only people who really believe that this is your best life are people whose lives are destined to be separated from him, which is really sad when you think about it. But because we want it, we find out that we've changed the gospel, we've changed the way we preach, even when it comes to heaven and salvation, to kind of make it all about us. So why did God save us? And how does him saving us and our salvation fit in with the kingdom of God? Because it seems like when we think about salvation today, it begins with justification. It begins with that moment where I prayed the sinner's prayer where I, I recognized Jesus as Lord and Savior, that I, uh, I recited historical facts about him, that I acknowledged him, I asked him to forgive me of my sins, to come into my life, and salvation takes place, and my, I'm regenerated from the inside out. God judiciously justifies me and says I'm, I'm not guilty. It's like I've never sinned. I have, I'm declared righteous even though I'm not in the flesh, but, but I am in the inner man because of the righteousness of Christ. I'm declared righteous, and I become aware of my salvation at that particular point in time. For me, I was 28 years old. For Karen, she was much, much younger. For you, it was that point in time where, uh, here it is, I've got it written in my Bible, January 14th, 1983, that's when I got saved. And we think salvation begins with justification, and it ends in eternity. It ends in heaven that that's all there is to salvation. It's all about me. I got saved, and so I'm going to kind of try to live a good spiritual life here while I'm earth on earth, but eventually I die and absent from the body, present with the Lord, and I'm in heaven for all eternity, and I'm surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, and everything is wonderful, and we think that that's pretty much it. But there's a tremendous amount of things that go on between justification and eternity in heaven, or even prior to justification and eternity in heaven. And there's a purpose for this. Our salvation wasn't just about us. Our salvation leads to something even greater. But we have a tendency of forgetting that in our, in our contemporary presentation or thinking about heaven and salvation. So here's what I've done. I've summed up pretty much what the church today believes about salvation. Most of it is true. Um, but I want you to see if you can figure out this little bent in it. The contemporary view of salvation. Salvation begins when I ask the Lord to forgive me of my sins and ask Jesus to come into my life as Lord and Savior. Well, that's when I become aware of it. Romans 8 says it actually began in eternity past. Ephesians says that I was chosen in him before the foundation of the world, yet I'm not aware of that until all of a sudden it's, I, I got saved. It was really great. I, I, I just felt the Holy Spirit in me. I felt this weight take, taken off me. I, I now I'll understand the scripture a little better. So my salvation begins with me. And then after that, most people follow believer's baptism, which is, again, an outward sign of, of what's happened inwardly. Some people do it immediately. Some people do it later than that. But that's primarily what happens with salvation. And then, to the best of our ability, we try to live according to the 
proclamation we made for Christ. Theologically, this is called sanctification. It's living like the saints we are, a set-apart life. Sometimes we do okay. Most of the times we kind of mess up. So it's kind of an up-and-down relationship with Christ for most Christians. If your life's not like that, if your life is heading up into the stratosphere, if you're going from a 7 to an 8 to a 9 to a 10 to a 12 to a 15, or whatever, hallelujah. But most Christians, that my experience has been, it's up and down and up and down and up and down. And, and like I've shared with you before, as proof for that, if 10 was the closest you've ever been to the Lord in your life ever, where are you now? And I venture to say that most of us are somewhere between five and nine, which means there was a time that I was closer to the Lord than I am now, which means instead of growing, I was closer to him yesterday than I ever was. But today I'm so close to him that this is my new 10 because it eclipsed what happened yesterday. And tomorrow I hope it's a, a new 10. Most Christians are somehow fallen back into that acceptable range of between seven and nine where, yeah, there was a time that I was closer to him than I am now, but I'm not really like a reprobate, like a two or three involved in gross immoral sin. I'm just satisfied being lukewarm. Up and down and up and down, and which is not what Christ originally planned for us. Of course, when we die, that's when things will get a whole lot better. Because when we die, we'll go to heaven and we'll be with the Lord and we'll be able to spend a whole bunch of time with other people that have already died and we'll do what? I don't know. I know there's a meal that takes place. I know there's some animals up in heaven. You'll be happy about that. I know that... Uh, I know that there's some, you know, I'll be able to talk with Moses and see how things did and the disciples. And okay, look at Revelation. It seems like we're going to be spending a lot of time praising. And if I don't really know how to praise him here, it's really hard to figure out that. And will I be, I, what happens in heaven? It's a long time not to have an agenda. So contemporary, the way we think about heaven today, what happens when we get to heaven? Well, first of all, we get a new glorified body, which doesn't have all the pitfalls of the body we're leaving behind. I'm excited, aren't you? How old will we be? Who knows? Probably your optimum age. I, I have no idea. But the fact is, the decaying entropy and gravity-ravished body that we have now, we won't have anymore. Okay, that's check for me. That sounds great. We can fly like angels. We'll be able to soar like Superman and like all these... Um, superheroes that just everybody's really into today. I mean, that'll be great. Walk through walls and see and all that kind of stuff because we'll not be limited to time and space. Man, won't that be cool to be able to do that? Even pictures will have maybe wings like angels because they can't imagine angels flying and us taking the bus. Something about some sort of supper we're invited to. I don't really know what that's all about. I'm not really sure. No, no, it's a marriage supper of the lamb. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Well, it's going to a wedding supper, so the food will be good. And, you know, I've, I don't know how long that's going to last, but okay. I, I know that I'm going to have this really big house. Matter of fact, a lot of people call it a mansion. And I'm going to get to travel down streets of gold and go through a pearly gate. And, and it's going to be great. Who's going to clean your mansion? Well, probably those people that live in a little lean-to in the other part of town across the tracks who aren't as spiritual as I am. We sing songs about heaven, and it's always about the big mansion in the sky, which is not what the Greek word means in John. But we think about that. It's going to be fantastic. Matter of fact, all our needs 
are going to be taken care of. We won't want anything. Everything will be given to us. It'll be, it'll be incredible. We'll, we'll, we'll be like rich compared to how we are here. We'll live like kings because we are a child of the king. There's no sorrow, no sadness, no tears, no depression. There's no money problems. There's no war. There's no nothing like that. We're just going to be happy all the time. And we're going to be surrounded by other people who are happy all the time, just like us. Does that seem a bit narcissistic to you? It's all about us. It's all about what we're going to do. So God saved us so we can go to heaven, which is like going to Carowinds and Disney World at the same time. So we can be happy. We can have a nice house. We can, we can look at streets of gold. We can eat anything that we want. We can fly. We can visit with friends. We can do all that kind of stuff. Oh, yes, and occasionally maybe we'll spend some time with the Lord, you know, like on Sunday because that is his day. And, and I started viewing how we view heaven. And it's like, so that's the whole purpose of this? for us to embrace Christ so he can take us to Disney World before Corona, and then we can just have a wonderful time. But where does the kingdom fit in? Where does Christ fit in? I mean, is there, is there a different purpose to maybe our salvation than we're catching right now? I mean, I know when I got saved, and I know when I die sometime in the future that I'll go directly and be with Jesus, and all I think about is heaven. I don't really care about what takes place on earth. I don't really care about stuff that's going on prophetically. I'm not really sure about what happens during the seven-year tribulation period for those that are, are raptured or what happens during this millennial reign of Christ. Good night, there's at least a thousand and seven years between the rapture and the time that we actually go into a new heaven and new earth. But we never even think about that thousand years. That's from here back to the dark ages. That's from living in serfs way back when with no language, I mean, no written language. You couldn't even read back then all the way to, to we are now. That is a long, long time. And Jesus continually spoke about the kingdom. His kingdom was his dominance over the whole world and also his kingdom where he rules and reigns on earth for a thousand years. And of course according to contemporary teaching, will rule and reign with him. Let me give you the spoiler. Not everybody. Not everyone. I don't understand that. You will, especially next week. Everything about the kingdom and everything about salvation is not always about us. God isn't sitting there saying, well, the plan of salvation was just so that I can have a relationship with you, Steve, because I'm real needy. So please love me. Please accept me. Please, please, please ask me into your heart. Oh, goody, he did. So Steve's now my friend. It's about his kingdom. This is God and Christ we're talking about here. And because we have centered Christianity all about us, We've taken this narcissism in the world out there, this narcissism on Facebook and social media, so it's all about us because everybody, everybody on the planet needs to see the meal I'm eating right now. Click, 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 you know, and oh, wow, that's just great. Because it's all about us, we think it works exactly the same way with salvation, that God, the sovereign creator of the universe, is so lonely and so needy that he just needs you with him. 
and he'll be incomplete without you, rather than realizing that we are a byproduct of the Jews rejecting him. And we, the purpose of our salvation is to make God's chosen people jealous. Well, that kind of devalues my position. It kind of exalts them. Read the book of Romans. Read the book of Galatians. That it's all part of God's sovereign plan to glorify his son, to establish his son's kingdom. And you and I are blessed enough to be children of the king, sons of the king, to help him establish that. Well, Steve, are you the centerpiece of his eternal plan? I don't know. You would think so, the way that we talk about salvation and the way we feel about heaven and everything, but it's possible, just possible, that the centerpiece of his eternal plan is not me and not you. It could be, just maybe, could be, don't know for sure, but it could be his son, his son. Because we think it's all about us, it gives us liberty to take it or leave it. Because, you know, God, like, I mean, sometimes I hear it almost preached this way. Uh, Tammy, uh, my son died for you, Tammy. He really loves you, Tammy. Will you love him back, please? Will you love him back? I mean, my son needs a friend. Will you love him, please? Please accept my, my gift. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And Tammy goes, ah, all right, fine. I'll give you a chance. And so she says, just give me two weeks, okay? So Tammy accepts it. I'm so excited. Angels are rejoicing that Tammy's done that. And God somehow feels better satisfied, more fulfilled with himself because Tammy and I have embraced him. Now all the power rests with Tammy. All the power rests with me. I can accept him or reject him. I can follow him or not follow him because he's not a king. He's not a Lord. He's not even a God. He's my friend. He's my good buddy. He's my pal. He's somebody that's so needy that I make complete when salvation's about me. And so therefore, we can live any way we want. We can offend the king of kings. We can make light of the sacrifice of Christ, and it doesn't bother us because it's all about us. But it's not. It's not at all. First time I understood authority, I was, uh, I was uh, working, doing your two years of indentured servitude as a C at a CPA firm uh, so you could actually get your certificate when it was over. And there were two partners there. There was Harvey Tarpley, who's this old curmudgeon. He was probably 35 back then. Old curmudgeon kind of guy that started it. And then Jim Underwood, who was the young, hip, uh, at least in the 80s, uh, young, hip guy that was not that many years older than me. And uh, I had done this audit, and the reviewer of the audit had really bungled it up, and I had gone over budget, and Harvey was irritated at me for doing that. It cost us money on this. And so, uh, and so I went into Jim to complain. Man, what is this deal? Because Jim and I are buddies. You know, what is this deal? I, I don't understand. You know, he did, Harvey's doing this and all that kind of stuff. I really just unloaded on Jim, who was actually... I unloaded on Harvey, who was actually Jim's boss as a senior partner of the firm. And so, of course, Jim Underwood went to tell Harvey about it because that was his job. Harvey called me in and sat down and said, I'm not sure that you can work here anymore. And this fear felt it physically just, oh, my gosh. You know, and he was looking down and 
He said, you know, there's rules and etiquettes. Fact is that what you tried to do is turn my partner against me. He said, uh, and I denied it, but that's exactly what I was trying to do. Trying to get somebody to listen to my side of the story. And I understood authority. And I understood that my callousness and me just shooting my mouth off and me doing what I wanted to do had grave consequences. I didn't get fired, but I certainly was humbled to the point that that never happened again. And the reality is that we treat God exactly the same way, not realizing what authority and kingdom and power really is and why he saved us in the first place. And we, well, let me continue. In Scripture, God does not leave us blind. In Scripture, God lays out for us various timelines. He shows us a sequence of things. He shows us a sequence of our own salvation, how that happened, what was the timeline regarding that. He shows us the, uh, a sequence of the history of the church in general. He shows us a timeline of Israel, his chosen people. And if we put them all together, we can see that God's timeline for humanity is much bigger than us, and we are just a small part of his grand scheme to establish the kingdom of God with his son as king. For example, the verses we looked at earlier, the justice read for you, the timeline for your individual salvation. We read this verse, Romans 8.28, that everybody memorizes that you quote during tough times. And we know that all things work together for good, not for everybody. Not, that's not a blanket promise. This isn't socialism here where you get a ticket just for participating. It's only for certain people who meet certain requirements. All things don't work together for good for everybody, but they do for those who love God. And then for those who love God, there's a subcategory of those to those who are the called according to his divine purpose. Promise, all things work together for good to those who love God, do you? And those who are the called according to his purpose. I don't even know what that means. I'm not even sure what his purpose is, but I think his purpose is bigger than just me. And so he begins to explain or introduce this concept of called according to his purpose. And the question we have in verses we've looked at a lot is where does this fit in to this process of salvation, this called thing? Next two verses lay out his timeline of salvation. Now, I want you to notice before I go over this, that every one of these events that the Lord reveals to us here through the pen of Paul are sovereign acts of God. Omitted from here are things that you do. The purpose of this is for Paul to show how God is sovereign in everything. Therefore, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor height or death and anything can separate us from the love of God because that's God's action. So from God's perspective, this is his timeline of our salvation. He foreknew us. The word is pre-gonosco. Pre-placed his favor on us. Pre-knew us experientially. And those that he foreknew, those that he placed his favor on beforehand, he also predestined. To predestine simply means to predetermine the outcome. I'm already determining how this play is going to turn out. I foreknew you, therefore I have predestined you. To do what? To be what? To be conformed to the image of his son. 
That only happens when salvation takes place and the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. And then you have a choice now to live according to the Spirit and be conformed to the image of His Son or live in rebellion to the Spirit and be conformed to anything other than the image of His Son to be a four or five or six or seven or whatever it is spiritually rather than be a 10 and tomorrow another 10 and tomorrow another 10 growing in Christ likeness. We were foreknown, pre-applied grace before the foundation of the world, Ephesians says, and predestined for an outcome. Why? So that you and I will get to go to heaven, so that you and I can fly, so that you and I can have a big mansion, so you and I can have all our needs met, so you and I can just have a good time when it comes to being in heaven. No. You and I are not conformed to the image of his son for some inherent blessing we receive, although it is a great blessing, but that he, he, Christ, not me and not you, might be the firstborn or the preeminent among many brethren, that he would be exalted. Our salvation is for his glorification. And we find that later for his kingdom. Moreover, those he predetermined the outcome, these he also called. This is that effectual call. This is when all of a sudden we recognize our, our abandonment from Christ. We recognize there's something missing. We have this, as C.S. Lewis said, this God-shaped heart, uh, hole in our heart that only he can fill. We recognize him wooing us and moving him toward us towards us. And again, as I've shared with you before, an effectual call means that the power in the call is able to accomplish what is being decreed. It's not like calling a dog, which may or may not come. It's like, let there be light, bam, and there was light just in the word. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And those who he called, he also justified, declared righteous. When you and I are recognize the fact that we're saved, and everyone that is justified truly in him someday will be glorified. This is when we talk about getting a glorified body. This is after our life on earth. Every one of these things are things that God does. God chooses us beforehand. God predetermines our outcome. God calls us to himself. God completes that transaction with our justification where he, not us, he declares us righteous, and then he promises for all those he declares righteous, he will at some point in time glorify. All the things that have to do with us are admitted from this. There's no faith in repentance. There's no sanctification. What happens between justification and glorification? We live, learn to live according to the, to the mandates of Christ, and it's based on this sanctification that will determine how useful you are in God's kingdom. Well, that's where we struggle so much. That's where I should be a 10, but I'm a three because I'm too busy working. I'm too busy taking care of my kids. I'm too busy doing the stuff that I want to do. I'm too busy watching television shows or making my way in this world or, or doing all those kinds of things that I don't really have time for God. And so therefore, in that sanctification process where we have a tendency of failing, we think that there's no consequences for that. We think that life is just okay, that God is like, yeah, well, you know what? It's fine. Don't worry about it. It doesn't work that way. I will not take time to go through this, but in the book of Revelation, we have the timeline of the church. 
where the Lord shows us exactly what the church age will be like historically. And it's the seven letters, the seven churches. And if you put them in any other order, it wouldn't fit. He gives us this outline of the church in uh, Revelation chapter one. Jesus says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. It's this outline of the book of Revelation. Chapter one, chapters two and three, and then you've got the rest of the book. Chapters one, the things you have seen. I'm in the Lord's day. I turn around. I see the son of man there. I explain how he's dressed. He gives me commands. It's the stuff I'm experiencing right now. Chapters two and three, I want, you, I want you to write about the things that are, that are taking place right now, these seven letters, the seven existing churches in Asia Minor who are prophetic in nature. And then the things that will be after these things from chapter four on the book of Revelation, it takes place in the future. And so if you want to know the history of the church, you just look at the seven letters to the seven churches. The first one in Ephesus runs from about 30 AD to the close of the first century. You find that in Revelation 2, 1 through 7. It's the loveless church. Some, some churches have good things said about them. Some churches have bad things said about them. Some churches have good and bad. This is one of the good and bad. The bad thing is that you've left your first love. Well, here's what you need to do. Remember there from when you were fallen, repent and do the first works. The early church was already beginning to drift. The second one is Smyrna, takes place during all the persecution time up until the Edict of Constantine. We find that Revelation chapter 2, 8 through 11. It's the persecuted church. It means crushed is what it means. Uh, we find that in this church, the Lord only has good things to say about it, which means maybe when persecution takes place in our church, in the church in America, maybe we'll go from being the Laodicean church to the Smyrna church, and maybe he'll only say good things about us if we stand firm according to the faith. There's a timeline here. Pergamos, from about 312 to 606. 606 is when Boniface III was named the first pope. This is when all of a sudden the church began to adopt pagan practices. They began to make pagan temples, church temples, and pagan priests, church priests, and they became satisfied with being the state church. It's the compromised church. The word means mixed marriages. Jesus says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them. Who? It's the people who have the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans by the sword of my mouth. And we find in this church, you got some good, some bad. He lets us know what the history is like of the church. We enter into the pretty much the Catholic church here from AD 606. And we find here it takes us all the way to the tribulation because this cryptic phrase, let him that hears, it has an ear, let him hear what the Lord says to the churches has now moved in the letter from the body to the end on the last four. And there's a reason for that that we talked about. This is the corrupt church. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you've allowed the woman Jezebel. And he goes on to talk about that. Hold fast to what you have until I come. They did some good things. Even though as Protestants, we like to think everything they did is terrible. They did some good things. They spoke as a single voice. We don't have a voice in the culture that's single anymore as a church. Here's the scary one, Sardis. Sardis is the Reformation church. Sardis is the church of those, means those they came out of. It's the church that we basically take our marching orders from. 
It is the dead church. They didn't go far enough. I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. Well, what do I do? Therefore, uh, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. This church, only bad things were said about it, which is sobering when you think about it. Following that is the Philadelphia church. It's the great missionary church of the 17th and 18th century. It's where George Mueller was from. It's where D.L. Moody and the great missionary movements and people that took the word of God seriously, Spurgeon and people of that nature, that they cared about literally turning the world upside down for Christ. It was a faithful church. And this particular church is promised, promised not to go through the tribulation. Because you have kept my commands to persevere, and I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come, future, upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Take the book of Revelation, two groups of people, those who dwell in heaven, those who dwell on the earth. It's those, those that don't embrace Christ. And then this is where we are today. This is the church of today. Matter of fact, let me just read this to you. It's a church in Laodicea. It is a church that really historically began, of course, these numbers aren't exact, around the turn of the last century, where all of a sudden higher criticism crept in from Germany that we talked about that on uh, Tuesday and, and Wednesday, where the Bible was no longer the word of God, that you're the center of everything. The enlightenment was in full swing at that time. I think, therefore, I am. Therefore, it's only what you're able to conceive. And if you can't conceive God in your own mind, then he must not exist. And, and it became this desire that we have to do things our own way, to, to see it the way we want to. The word Laodicea literally means the people rule. It's our call. We, our God, will have no sovereign over us. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. You're not a one and you're not a 10. I wish that you were cold or hot. Make a decision. You're for me or against me. So then, because you are lukewarm, four, five, six, satisfied with, with our apathy, I will vomit you out of my mouth. One of the strongest words about God's feelings about anybody found in the New Testament. I will regurgitate you, literally projectile vomit you out of my mouth. Why? Why, the church says? Because you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing, including you, God. I can build my own churches. I can hype up my own praise music. I can make it my own way in this world. I'll ask you to bless what I'm doing, but it all rests with me because the people rule. And do you not know from God's perspective that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? He says this at the end. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Oh, that's him knocking at the door of your heart. And if you open the door, he'll come in and dine with you and you with him. No, he's knocking on the door of the church. This is a letter to a church in Laodicea, not an individual. God is on the outside of the church. And this is the primary view of church today. And the Lord only says things bad about that church. 
We can look at the history of the church and see right where we are in prophetic history. But it ain't about us. We are not the apple of God's eye. We are the wild vine that was grafted in. The apple of God's eye is in Israel. And he lays out for his people this timeline of their history. Just in Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, you got the vision Nebuchadnezzar has. And he basically tells him about the four world empires that will come. You are Babylon, then you have Mede and Persia, then Greece, then Rome, and Rome will have two legs and there'll be 10 toes. And the, the second Roman empire down towards the feet will be brittle, mixed with clay and a stone not cut by hands will come at the last days and hit this man, all these world empires right at, this, at the feet and it will all crumble together. Daniel chapter 7, he focuses on these four beasts, which again is a different picture of these four world kingdoms. And then he focuses on just some of those beasts, which is, um, which is uh, Alexander the Great, because he has a great effect on the promised land in Daniel chapter 8. The greatest prophecy ever is in Daniel chapter 9, where he gives this mathematical prophecy that tells you from the decree to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem from Artaxerxes found in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one day in which he allows himself to be declared king is 183,880 days, 70 weeks. And it was fulfilled to that day. Well, what happens during the intertestament period? What happens between Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist. We find that in Daniel chapter 11 and 12. It lays out for us the history of Israel. God does not leave us blind. Then we have this vision at the end where there's these strange 75 days and we're not sure what happens there. And I'll explain that to you in just a moment. In Ezekiel, it talks about what's happened currently right now, that Israel's brought back into the land, this valley of dry bones. Then we see what happens to the Antichrist as he tries to make a war against Israel either right after or right during the beginning of the tribulation period. And it takes seven years to, for the armaments to, to lose their power and to go by and bury the dead. There's also a prophecy possibly about the United States and how the United States fits in to world events. He lays out for us the timeline of your life, but your life and my life are just a small little segment of God's universal timeline that we are privileged to be part of, but it ain't all about us. He's got a plan bigger than us, but he's allowed us to be part of his divine plan. And it should humble us. It should make us thankful and it should make us obedient. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation talk about uh, the church. Then the church is raptured, and the tribulation time begins, and the rest of the book is just all Jewish because he's dealing with his people. You have 144,000 seals from the 12 tribes of Israel, and here they list them. Why would you do that if it's a Gentile book? We have these two prophets, what, Billy Graham and the Apostle Paul? No, it's probably Moses and Elijah. We have the fall of Babylon the Great. We've got the New Jerusalem. Everything focuses on the Jews. As I've shared with you before, you want to understand the book of Revelation? Beginning in chapter 4, you take your Gentile hat on, you put your Jewish hat on, and it unfolds like a love letter, like a historical letter. 
So why are we talking about this? Why are you making me feel like salvation isn't all about me? Because it's not. God loves you. God has a plan for your life. But that plan is to be an integral part of his bigger plan. It's like if you're an offensive guard, defensive tackle on a football field. Coach has got a plan. Coach has got plays. You play a part. It ain't all about you, and it ain't all about me. And when we understand how it fits into his kingdom and that we serve a king who's coming to rule and reign on earth like it was during the time of Adam and Eve, everything changes. The haphazardness, the, uh, it doesn't really matter. I was going to study this week, but I didn't because uh, I was just too busy. I got other things to do. There's more important things in my life than serving my king changes. So timeline of end time events. I want you to see where you fit in to this. Began with Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden, gave them everything they needed, told them simply, obey me and don't eat of this particular fruit. Yet they did. Their job was to, uh, is to multiply and subdue the earth. They were to rule and reign on the earth. Christ was their God, God was their Father, yet they had been delegated certain authority to be able to rule and reign on earth. And then they decided to go their own way. Rebellion crept into them like it did into Satan, and all of a sudden they were separated from God, they were cast out of the garden, and they lost that ability to rule and reign with him. Satan now became the, the God of this world. He usurped it from God, and God just let it play out knowing that in the end, he was going to put it all back together. So he gathered a group of people that he created from, or that he chose from Abraham, called this man Abraham from Earl of Chaldees, brought him to a land, didn't even know where he was. And from that, he created the Jewish people. And then from that point in time, they had a kingdom because he had a king that was after his, his own heart. And he promised that on this throne of David, someday his son would come and rule and reign as king of a kingdom. It's always about the kingdom. Should have got that last week as we went through all the verses about a kingdom. So we waited for that day to happen. The Jews were sold into captivity. The Jews apostatized. The Jews became compromised. The Jews had it really tough. They continued going their own way until God basically just set them aside for a while. And then all of a sudden, after 400 years of silence, the last of the Old Testament prophets stand up, John the Baptist, and proclaims a king is coming for his kingdom. His message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is one coming. I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. He will come baptizing you with fire and the Holy Spirit. His winnowing fork to clear out the threshing floor, to set things straight, is already in his hand. And then Jesus came, manifesting the kingdom, teaching about the kingdom. And yet the Jews at that time rejected him. Pilate stood up there and says, here is your king. We have no king but Caesar. I find no fault in this man. What should I do with your king? Crucify him and let his blood be on us and our children. We take the responsibility of crucifying the king. 
And at that particular point, I believe, God took Israel and set it aside. And as Paul said, decided to create the church. And when he created the church that he first talked about in Matthew 16, and then later on we see in Acts chapter 2, the church is someone that is to make Israel jealous. This is what it's like when the king lives in you. This is what it's like when you don't have to go to a tabernacle or sanctuary and meet with the Lord on certain feasts. This is what happens when God lives in you and you become a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. But as usual, the church, like Israel, began to apostatize. The church decided to go their own way, call their own shots, live the way they wanted to, and move into an area known as the great apostasy that Jesus has talked about in Matthew chapter 24, which we're going through right now. And towards the end of that great apostasy, Paul says in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, the rapture occurs, where it says the restrainer is taken away. The Holy Spirit is removed. And so Satan has full reign for nothing holding him back. Where does the restrainer live? Where does the Holy Spirit live? Not in the tabernacle or temple anymore, but in us. So the rapture takes place. The restrainer is now removed. And then it says at that point, the Antichrist will begin to be revealed. So what happens to us if the rapture occurs today? Well, there's things that happen in heaven and there's things that happen on earth. The things that happen in heaven is there is a judgment of believers. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment. It's not a judgment of whether or not you're saved or get to go to heaven. It's a judgment based on rewards or lack of rewards. We believe that God only gives rewards and never takes those away. And you know what? You know, if I don't get the prize, that's okay. I don't want to work that hard anyway. I'll just, uh, you know, I'll be satisfied with getting nothing not realizing that the rewards that are passed out are rewards that honor the king. Let me recognize what you have done. Then there's a marriage supper of the lamb, and you will find that there is a possibility that not everybody is invited to the marriage supper. We find that in various parables the Lord's talked about, that maybe, maybe the marriage supper is only, those people are only invited to the marriage supper who will have positions of authority or rule and reign with Christ during the millennial reign. I don't like the way that sounds. Why? Well, it doesn't seem fair. Why? It seems fair in every other area of your life. It seems fair on a ball team. Everybody doesn't start. You start the players to show up in a game. True. It seems fair in, uh, in school. You work really hard and you get an A. Why should this person get an A that never went to class? It works really hard in work. You don't give unfaithful people raises or unfaithful people rewards or promotions. It works in every other area of our life, but we don't think it works that way in heaven because it makes us scared. It makes us feel bad that the king can't be like a real king. The king has to be like some soft guy that's real needy and just, I'll give you a prize if you'll just love me. On earth, we have this emergence of the Antichrist. The tribulation begins when the Antichrist orchestrates a seven-year treaty with Israel at that time. Midpoint of that treaty, there's an abomination of desolation that takes place where he sits down on the Bema seat 
in the Holy of Holies demanding to be worshipped. And then the believing Jews are commanded to flee to the mountains of Edom and the great tribulation takes place. Three and a half years. Um, uh, 42 months, 1260 days, time, times, and half time, as the scripture talks about. The most documented time in history takes place here where God is now pouring out his bold judgments on the earth at that time. Then Christ returns at the end of that tribulation period. You have this battle of Armageddon, and then you've got this 75 days in the book of Daniel. Last couple of verses in the book of Daniel that aren't 1,260 days. There's an extra 30 days, an extra 45 days that are added. And theologians believe that this is when the sheep and goat judgment takes place, where those people that are still alive on the earth will be separated like the Lord separates the sheep and the goats. Because there will be people in human bodies, just like you and I, that will survive the tribulation and move alive into the millennial reign of Christ, who will give birth, who will get married, who will grow old, who will die. And then there's this time that really makes up half of Christian history right now, this millennial reign of Christ, where we're supposed to rule and reign with him. And some will, and some won't. Millennial kingdom. You know, Satan is bound, and Jesus rules from Jerusalem, and and some believers will have positions of authority. His disciples will have positions of authority. And some believers won't. Everybody who knows the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior enters the kingdom, but that doesn't mean you inherit the kingdom. If we lived in a, a feudal land where there was a king and had his kingdom, and I go through the front gate because I want to sell my wares, I can enter the kingdom as a citizen of the kingdom, but I may not possess the kingdom. That only belongs to his children, to those who inherit Satan, at the end of this thousand years, is released for a season. They have a, another big kind of confrontation. He's now thrown into the abyss. You have the great white throne judgment at the end of that. And then heaven, new heaven and new earth, where we skip from justification to new heaven and new earth, and we forget about all these events that take place between these, this time, which last over a thousand years. That's a long time to regret our apathy in this life. I mean, how does it work? First thing you need to understand, I'll go through this very quickly, I'm sorry, is that salvation is not just something that, boom, happens and we're done. Salvation is a progress. It's why Paul said, you know, examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. I mean, Paul even said that about himself, that lest I, I'm a castaway. He always wanted to make sure he was saved because you've got three tenses of salvation. I have been saved, eternity past. I am being saved currently, and I will be saved. And we find the three areas of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification are all three aspects of what we just sum up as saying the sinner's prayer. Justification, past tense, he declared me righteous. I asked him to come into my life. I was justified that day. Sanctification, which is also part of salvation, is something I'm going through right now as I'm learning to live with him, to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. Someday in the future, it hasn't happened to anybody yet, will be glorification where I'm with the Lord. And because of this, what the church has done over the last 
400 years is they've only given people two choices, two theological positions to understand salvation. The first one is Calvinism. Calvinism believes in eternal security. Once saved, always saved, absolutely. Or truly saved, always saved. You don't become a son and then he dumps you because you spilled your milk or something of that nature. That makes him a worse dad than the worst dads we know. Calvinism says that he believes they believe in the perseverance of the saints. In other words, God will never let you go and you'll never let go from God no matter how bad it is. But when you look at Calvinism, we're not talking about being reformed or talking about sovereignty of God. We're talking about just the teaching of Calvin in these two camps. When you look at that, he basically says that you really won't know that you're chosen until you're dead. And once you die, if you haven't apostatized the faith, then obviously you were chosen. Okay. But the other side of that is the teaching of uh, Arminianism. And Arminianism puts all salvation on you. It puts you have to be the one that stays connected with God. They also believe that everyone who perseveres to the end will be saved. But if you don't persevere to the end, then salvation is conditional. It means that, you know, I was saved, but then I really messed up and now I'm not saved. But, you know, I'm going to rededicate my life or ask the Lord to come into my heart again today. At a revival meeting, now I am saved, but then I'm going to go home and watch porn tonight. Now I'm not saved. It doesn't work that way at all. That, do you realize how that destroys Christ's completed work on the cross? But there's only these two. And these two basically say that you're either in or you're out, and if you're in, you get everything, and everything's wonderful, and if you're out, you're not. There's a third view that I want to share with you, and I don't even know a name. I'm just going to call it the overcomer view because it's exactly what is taught in Scripture. The overcomer view also believes in eternal security. It believes in the fact that once saved, always saved, but it sees a distinction, as you'll find in Scripture, between entering the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom. And the difference between entering the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom is you and me and the life we live right now. And so therefore, there's a variation of rewards. Not everybody gets the same reward. Not everybody is honored the same, just like it is in every other aspect of our life. Why would we assume it would be different in heaven? There's this chain of inheritance which goes like this. Sanctification is me living righteously and holy before the Lord and doing the things that he has called me to do, uh, limiting my personal freedom for the sake of the gospel. Well, sanctification leads to my partaking in the life of Christ, partaking in the things of the kingdom, becoming closer to him, being able to feel him more and experiencing him more, which leads, of course, to me being able to live this overcomer life. If you will look at Revelation chapter 2 through 3, every one of those letters to seven churches says, to him who overcomes, I will give this reward to, not to everyone, but to him who overcomes. And he's speaking to church. If you're an overcomer, then it leads, of course, to inheriting the kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. So here's the question, summing it up. And I know I... When Karen was proofing this, she goes, well, you're going to teach them everything you know in one session? True. I know I've gone through this quick, but I want to just build this foundation that I will bring it all to a close next week. Do you believe God holds you accountable for what you do in this life? 
Well, no, because uh, the Lord forgave me of all my sins, and so all my sins are covered, and I'm not supposed. He doesn't want to remember them anymore, and so therefore, He's not going to call all my sins back up. And there's a couple of verses that uh, there's a couple of verses that kind of speak against that. So, are we talking about the Great White Throne Judgment? Are we talking about the Sheep and Goats Judgment? Are we talking about the Bema Seat Judgment? And the Great White Throne Judgment, all covered by the blood of Christ. The, those sins or whether you embrace Christ or not embrace, embrace Christ, are already paid for. At the Bema Seed judgment, this judgment of rewards, it's different there. It's different. Everyone, the scripture says, will be in a, give an account for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Or do we believe God is a socialist, which is very popular today, meaning that everyone receives the same reward regarding of their faithfulness or lukewarmness. Doesn't really matter. We want everybody happy. And so, you know, you you get you work 12 hours a day and you work two hours a day and you don't even come to work at all. And and I was just gonna pay everybody the same. We're gonna reward everybody the same. Nobody gets any more than everybody else because that's just the way God functions. We don't function that way in society, we don't function that way with our friends, we don't function that way with our kids. Hey, listen, if um, um I have two children, if you'll do this job, guys. I'll give you an allowance. I'll give you a reward. I'll, I'll pay you five bucks. Okay, one does and one doesn't. So what do we do? Pay them both five bucks? No, because the one who did says, I'm not doing it anymore. The one who didn't says, I'll never do it again. I mean, nobody does that. Yet we assume that's the way God is. And the reason why we assume is because it makes us feel more comfortable in our sin and our apathy and being a six or a seven spiritually. I can live that way for 30 years because it really doesn't matter because after all, if God gives me some crown, I'm just going to give it back to him. So what's the big deal? And we forget it's not about us. It's about a king and a kingdom. If you believe God holds you accountable, for what you do in this life for him, truly do in this life for him. Are there any implications that would have in the way you spend the rest of this afternoon? How much time you spend in his word and in prayer? How much stuff you say for you or how much stuff you give away? How faithful you are to his word or how unfaithful you are? How much you gratify the flesh and how much you live for the spirit? If you truly believe that you are gonna be held accountable would your words change? Would you yell at your wife with profanity? Would you, would you not spend time with your kids because you're too busy doing stuff that you want to do? I mean, how would it change everything in your life? Everything. Next week, I'm going to put this all together for you. Show you what the scripture teaches about heaven, what the scripture teaches about our place in heaven. And if it is true, you'll have to make that decision yourself. If it is true that God rewards faithfulness and God doesn't reward apathy or non-faithfulness, where would he reward that at? In heaven proper? I don't think so, because then it'd be tears and shame and disappointment. Where would he reward that? He rewards it in his kingdom. He rewards it during the millennial reign of Christ. And that is a long time to... Not, and this almost sounds arrogant to use these words, rule and reign with him because of the petty things we devoted our life to now, which will mean nothing 
in his kingdom. Amen? Tomorrow, our next Sunday, we'll talk more about that. Let me pray.